Xtalks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing why antimicrobial resistance is a silent pandemic. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Mira Nabolsi. Thanks for coming today. Um, I'm going to present uh, just one topic for us to discuss today, and um, I want to talk about the issue of antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, and how the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted the need to address the address this public health issue. Um, so this is based on an article I wrote on AMR that was based itself on a webinar we ran this year in which infectious disease experts talked about the importance of tackling AMR. So as always, we'll link uh, to this story in the um, the show notes for today's podcast. Um, so I'm sure we've probably all heard about the emergence of so-called drug-resistant superbugs in the last few years, and many physicians have really scaled back the number of prescriptions they write for antibiotics to avoid um, contributing to the problem. So you might have found that it's harder now to get a prescription for an antibiotic than it was maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, um, when some doctors were, you know, handing them out for coughs and colds that were likely viral and not bacterial um, in origin. So it wasn't really a a good use of of antibiotics. Um, But I wanted to share some numbers to put this issue of AMR into context today and really show that it's still a major global health problem. Um, So of the 250 million global antibiotic prescriptions written each year, it's estimated that 47 million of those are actually unnecessary. So that's nearly 20% of all scripts that are given out. So that's pretty scary. Um, And there are 3 million serious infections caused by antimicrobial resistant pathogens each year, resulting in 700,000 deaths globally. Um, and this number is expected to balloon up to 10 million uh, AMR-related deaths by the year 2050. And that's, you know, not too long in the future, in the next 29 years. Um, and in addition to the human toll, you can imagine that this has a tremendous financial impact. So each year, $8.8 billion is spent on antibiotic Um, prescriptions and half of the current top AMR threats, so the pathogens that are that are considered um, high threats for antimicrobial resistance, have a global economic impact of $5.7 billion. So, you know, clearly this is a problem. And as I said earlier, it's one that's really come into sharp focus um, during the pandemic. And that's because serious SARS-CoV-2 infections requiring hospitalization are often associated, um, not in all cases, but certainly in some, with the development of secondary bacterial infections. And sometimes that's associated with, um, you know, intubation and that sort of thing um, that can introduce um 
bacterial pathogens in someone who's already, you know, fighting off another uh, infectious disease. So in early 2020, at the start of the pandemic, data out of China suggested as many as one in seven patients hospitalized with COVID-19 acquired a secondary bacterial infection. Um, and this coupled with the fact that COVID-19 was sometimes mistaken for bacterial pneumonia in the early days of the pandemic likely had an effect on the overuse of empiric antibiotics. Um, while this number is likely lower overall, now that we have more data, now that COVID is, is um, better characterized as a viral disease, uh, infectious disease researchers have suggested that SARS-CoV-2 may show synergies with certain bacterial pathogens, uh, which makes it more likely a patient will develop a secondary infection. So this isn't fully known um, in terms of the mechanisms by which this could occur, um, but it it seems like, or it's been postulated that uh, maybe this particular coronavirus um, can work synergistically with with other bacteria to kind of allow them to infect someone, um, or maybe create the right conditions um, for that secondary bacterial infection to occur. So uh, what can we do to address AMR and prevent the next pandemic? Well, the solution may be twofold, supporting AMR surveillance programs um, and also supporting companies developing new antimicrobial agents. Um, because that's such, you know, research and development into any new drug is, is such an expensive and time-consuming endeavor. Um, there's a high failure rate, a lot of these smaller companies that are focused on developing new antibiotics, um, you know, one failure can mean the end of their company, essentially, and, and bankruptcy. Um, so it's important to kind of uh, support them and, and keep uh, the people who know the most about these infectious diseases and developing new agents um, in the industry and, and doing that. Uh, but like most endeavors in healthcare, both of these uh, potential solutions really require consistent sources of funding, which has been an issue, along with um, public and private in investments. So um, the speakers on, on the webinar that I was talking about were really highlighting how this isn't really, you know, a government or a private problem, nor is it like a North American or a European problem. It's very much a global issue that's affecting everyone. Um, and so we need every way, uh, everyone's buy-in into these sort of antimicrobial surveillance programs. Um, so in the case of these AMR surveillance programs, uh, the way it works is that medical institutions are selected to participate based on geographic distribution. Um, they collect and they submit pathogen samples from patients uh, to a central reference microbiology laboratory where they're ID'd and characterized and oftentimes um, samples are stored. And this can help identify organisms that are developing resistance to current antibiotics, um, as well as determine whether that resistance is transferable to other organisms. So um, antimicrobial resistance can be uh, a genetic mutation that, that only benefits the one organism, the one bacterial species, or sometimes this can happen uh, on kind of a... Um, 
piece of DNA, I guess, that can be uh, transferred to other unrelated bacterial species, which is obviously an issue because then you have the same antimicrobial resistance gene being passed to, um, to other pathogens and you get more widespread um, resistance. Uh, and obviously all of this data as well can c help inform the development of uh, new antimicrobial agents as well. So kind of supporting those companies that are, um, that are developing new antibiotic drugs. Um, so considering that this problem of antimicrobial resistance, you know, isn't new, it's something that we've known about for decades, um, what do you think is holding us back from making, you know, real strides to, to solve this problem? Well, one of my first questions was, um, and this is like a really simple question, and I'm sure <laughs> it has like a much more complex answer, but is it worse to like, let's say you have, um, let's say someone gets pneumonia. Is it worse for them to be prescribed an antibiotic or to just have the pneumonia? Yeah, well, I think as long as antibiotics are used um, appropriately, I think you, we need, you, you need to treat it, especially in someone like who's, you know, elderly or immunocompromised for whom that pneumonia could turn into like a very serious infection. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor myself, but I think, uh, for the most part, it's, it's, we, that's why they're there. We need to be using them. I think the problem comes when they're not being used in the right cases. So when things are misdiagnosed, um, or when, like I was saying, was more of a problem, I think a few decades ago, but still seems to be a big problem when these antibiotic prescriptions are being handed out for things that, um, they're not going to be effective against. Another big problem actually that, uh, that I didn't really discuss in this, um, article, but I've, I've read about quite a bit before is when people are prescribed a course of antibiotics, they don't take it all the way. And so maybe you're supposed to take it for two weeks, but you feel better after a week. And so you don't take the rest of the pills and, and what they think happens is that, um, okay, that antibiotic has worked to really wipe out all of the, um, bacteria that were susceptible, but all of a sudden you've kind of selected for any bacteria that might have any slight resistance to that drug. Um, and now that, you know, you still have that and you have the potential in some cases to transmit that. Um, however, I've also read contrasting studies that say uh, maybe we shouldn't be taking it as long because maybe we're actually exposing these bacteria to um, the antibiotic for longer and sort of giving them the opportunity, I don't know if that's the right word, but the opportunity to then develop resistance, you know, all of these things are like, um, they're adapting to their environment, right? And uh, so that's sort of another another thing. So I think there's maybe a not not enough understanding here in some in some situations and a not not enough control over um, who's being prescribed these drugs. But hopefully to answer your question, I think it's it's usually makes sense to prescribe it as long as it's like, uh, yep, this is this antimicrobial agent is effective against this pathogen and at least for right now and um, this person needs to be treated, you know, because they're they're really sick. Yeah. What I was going to say, a personal experience of mine, um, I grew up in Jordan and there, uh, so pharmacists, just like doctors, have the rights to 
prescribe you medication. So a lot of the time growing up, I would go into the pharmacy instead of going to see a doctor and tell them, you know, I have a cold or a flu. And they automatically would always give me an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know the effect or the long-term effect of actually always going on antibiotic until I was, you know, in my older years at school where I was learning about the immune system, Mm -hmm. that I actually realized that having, taking an antibiotic isn't actually so good to do all the time, just like you were saying. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until then did I start telling, you know, my mother and things like that, like, no, I don't want to take an antibiotic, Mm -hmm. you know, because every time you'd go into the pharmacy, they just give you an antibiotic. And that was like Mm. constant, whether it's a sore or throat or a flu or a cold or anything that I start to say no. So I think a big part of this is the educational factor mm-hmm. of not just, you know, the doctors and the, like pharmacists or whatever, knowing that maybe you shouldn't always be prescribing antibiotics if you don't think that the, bac- the bacteria, that it is a bacteria and maybe a viral infection. Right. And then, you know, me being like, okay, no, I'd rather find a different course of treatment to my cold or my sore throat or whatever it is. So yeah, it's pretty interesting how things in North America work very differently than how I experienced things growing up. Yeah, that is a really good point, Mira, because aside from this, you know, giant public health issue of yeah. of AMR, um, it's also an issue of your own personal health. So taking especially these like broad spectrum antibiotics can really wipe out all of that, you know, good bacteria yeah, exactly. that you need to then try and replenish and you know, they talk about people eating yogurt or taking probiotic supplements and things like that. Um, It's, yeah, it can be really hard on your body for sure. Um, Especially if it's just something like a cold that's likely caused by a virus and not by a bacteria. And so the antibiotics not going to do, you know, anything. Um, But I think, you know, I experienced a, a similar thing growing up, not that we would have pharmacists here that could prescribe anything, but, you know, when I was quite young, I think doctors were more willing than just to write a script for an antibiotic or, or maybe some doctors felt like patients, you know, expected it. And so you go mm-hmm. in and be sick and it was probably just a cold, but here you go, I'll give you this and maybe it'll make you feel better. I think we've come a long way since then and that um, doctors are a lot more uh, wary about this, but yeah. You know, based on those numbers I shared, it's, it seems like it's still a giant global problem. And, and, you know, maybe it's certain countries as well that are still using those old practices of just judiciously, um, you know, sending out these scripts for antibiotics. Yeah. And another misconception that you mentioned is the idea of probiotics. Not that it is a misconception, but a lot of people assume, like my mother, for example, she goes, oh, just take the antibiotics and have yogurt for a couple of days. But it's actually... You need a full course of probiotics, which is typically around 15 to 30 days of taking Mm. these probiotic pills to actually regain the probiotic. But like you said, a lot of people don't actually even finish their antibiotic course for them to actually commit to having a probiotic course, Mm -hmm. which then is another, I don't know how many days added on to what you've already been prescribed. So I think, yeah, I think this issue is a lot bigger than, than just, you know. What we've been talking, what we've been talking about, definitely, especially because the number is so high that you mentioned. So, mm-hmm. I had another quick question um, for very common like microbial um, like infections. Are there generally like pretty easy tests that can be done to figure out whether ac- someone actually has it? 
Yeah, to identify like what type of bacteria is causing the infection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, often for sure there are like pretty simple diagnostic tests. I think for certain really common tests, like if you um, go to the doctor and you think you have, you know, strep throat off and they'll take a swab and they'll have a really quick test there to determine whether or not, you know, what type of bacteria that's caused by. Um, For other ones, I think it's like might be a little, you might require a blood test or something like that. Um, But yeah, oftentimes, yeah, these pathogens can be identified. I don't know if that's part of the issue. Maybe sometimes uh, in cases of less serious infections, maybe they're not being identified before an antibiotic's being prescribed. So, you know, you think about these... um, Antibiotics that have been around for a long time, like some of the legacy antibiotics like penicillin that were really just prescribed for a lot of things and and a lot of the pathogens now have developed resistance and it's not as effective as it once was. I mean, that's like the original antibiotic. I think that uh, I think that companies are are kind of working more to develop more tests to be able to pinpoint exactly the cause of a of an infection. But I guess it's all money and resources as well. So it depends. If you're at a great big medical center that has the capability to do um, tests, especially for maybe less common infections, that's great. But if you're at like a smaller center, maybe it's harder to. Um, find a place to send a sample to get the results. And in the meantime, you know, maybe your patient is quite sick and you need to make a decision on on what the course of treatment is going to be. Uh, so maybe that's part of the issue. But I think one of the biggest things too is, you know, even when you're identifying the pathogen, you're not necessarily identifying um, whether or not at, in, you know, in that sample from that patient, if that will be susceptible to the antibiotic that you're choosing. So you're kind of uh, making assumptions based on what's worked before, but all of a sudden that that might not work now, you know, that might have developed, this might be a resistance strain kind of thing that you haven't seen before. And that's why the idea of these AMR surveillance programs is so important um, and looking at geographically, you know, oh, do we have a growing population of um, infections in one specific area, let's say in the U.S., where we're seeing more of these uh, these pathogens that are that are resistant to a certain back, um, antimicrobial agent that used to be used all the time, and and what can we do about that issue? Is there another one we can use, or or do we need to develop something else? And I feel like this also just this whole concept translates to not just um, like microbial diseases, but like other things as well. For example, when I started taking. Um, too many medica- too many like pills for my headaches, I started getting medication overuse headaches. And oh. it was like the thing that helped me now is something that now I'm relying on. Yeah. And it's not as effective now that I'm taking so many of them. So I had to sort of lay off for a little bit and let my body like just do its thing naturally and then take them mm. in moderation. So mm. it's, it's, it's kind of similar in that like medication can be like incredible and, and work wonders, but then relying on it too much can actually work against you. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess the question then becomes, you know, like, how do we, can we prevent these infections in the first place? Like, I'm sure there are other larger um, questions around, I don't know, sanitation and things like that in certain areas and um, can't, you know, prevent 
every illness all the time, obviously, but, um, you know, maybe what are we doing differently nowadays as a society um, compared to 100 years ago and what's an improvement and what's not? You know, there's that idea now of, um, you know, our kids should be eating dirt or like playing in the dirt more people, you know, keep their kids so clean now. And it's, and it's great. I mean, there's like way less childhood mortality. Um, but, um, you know, I think people worry then are our kids really developing their immune system in the same way that they would have been way back when, when things weren't as spotlessly clean and Cloroxed and, you know, all the time. Uh, and obviously the pandemic hasn't helped that. I think everyone's really, you know, getting the sanitizer out all the time as we need to. But um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the effects of of this time of crazy levels of sanitation to obviously control the spread of COVID uh, will have maybe on the emergence of, of other, you know, superbugs in the future, I guess. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we were talking about this earlier, but I haven't gotten a cold since mm-hmm. 2019. And yeah. that, is that a coincidence? <laughs> it, I don't know if it is. Like, I really don't know yeah. if it is. No, I don't think so. Because you haven't been around anybody, right? There just hasn't been the same level of, uh, yeah, getting that kind of stuff. And it's, that's, you know, if it, it's weird for us and it's nice in a way because no one likes to get sick, but Again, it's super weird for kids um, for whom you'd normally see them getting sick all the time. As, and as annoying that as that is for, for kids and for parents and everybody, you're sort of like, okay, but we're working towards building their immune system. So it's weird to think, you know, my daughter's two and a half has like been sick maybe twice in her life with like a cold, you know, and, and I'm sure that'll change when she goes to school. But uh, yeah, yeah. Although they do say, you know, from... Um, this past year and a half of people being, you know, isolated and being at home, there's been way less deaths from things like flu, which would also normally uh, affect people, the elderly and, and immunocompromised people. So that's that's a good thing for sure. Um, yeah. Okay, well, that's the end of this episode of the Xox Life Science Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Xox Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.